Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I like my breakfast promptly at 7. Coffee, thin toast, and two eggs boiled two and a half minutes under no circumstances more than three. I'm TJ. Quoting Colonel <laughs> Smollett, William G. You didn't know we had Monty Woolley on the, the show today. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Serious Film People. This is our series of the 1944 films nominated for Best Picture at the 17th Academy Awards held in 1945. For this episode, we're discussing a film whose title is so utterly bland and innocuous, similar to the film, actually. Honest to God, I could not remember it during the couple of months that have passed since we locked 1944 in as the series we'd be doing following 1997. At nearly three hours in runtime, I defy either of you or anyone listening to remember the details of this movie more than a couple of days after viewing it. And if it sounds like I'm stalling, it's only because I'm literally Jeez, I'm literally looking through my notes trying to find... There it is, the title. The fucking title. Since you went away, that's what we're talking about this week. Uh, so, so, Ken, how do you feel about this movie? <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I'll start here. I hadn't heard of this movie before I selected 44 as the year. Had either of you heard of this movie, much less seen it? I had not heard of this movie. Oh, and yeah. like you, I really struggle with the title. Um, since you went away, since you've been gone, like, I, I don't know what, you know, but yeah, I hadn't heard of it. And um, it's kind of lost to history a bit. It's it's also very difficult to find. I had to watch it on YouTube in 360p, as the yeah. director intended. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> I found no fewer than 10 videos on YouTube that were 1080p. Oh, I must have googled. I must have googled the wrong title. Teacher, um. <laughs> <laughs> so. a completely different film. Oh shit! Actually, yeah, I watched my movie was about like the rise of Kelly Clarkson. That's what we watched, right? Teacher <laughs> just watched the Kelly Clarkson music video twenty times in a row to yeah. fill out three hours, and I thought it was great. More than twenty um, times, like sixty times. Yeah. <laughs> and now you can't breathe for the first time. Uh, my history with this movie goes way back, Ken. It goes all the way back to I think. Five days ago, when we recorded the episode on um, Going My Way, and you told me that this was the next movie we were going to watch, and uh, ever since then, <laughs> this movie's just been uh, in my brain endlessly. Uh, no, I had not heard of it, uh, similarly to you guys, until we um, decided to watch it. But um, sounds like I might have liked it more than you, which is honestly very, very surprising to me for a number of reasons, but um, even though I hadn't heard of it, there's a lot of familiar faces here. There are. You know? Absolutely. Both in front of and behind the camera? Yeah. Or at least there's one familiar name behind the camera for me. There's there's a there's a couple on the crew that I do want to touch on, or at least, there's yeah, there's a couple. Um, before we get into that, though, just so that the listeners aren't totally lost, I guess we should probably describe yeah. what this thing is about, what's going on here. Also because I'm very curious to hear this. Given it's three hours long, it's actually pretty easy to sum up, I feel like. Yeah. 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 I mean it it is. It's not that it's not that difficult. You've got the the main character is Anne Hilton, played by uh, Claudette Colbert. We'll talk about her probably more in a little bit. And her beloved husband Tim has been deployed uh, is off to, to fight in World War Two. Um, and Who's Tim played by? Tim, we don't know. Tim never shows up because he's gone right before we start the movie, and he's. I think that's. I think that's important to note, and that's something important to talk about in the movie. Yeah. And spoiler alert: uh, doesn't show up at the end. I was really no. hoping it was. I, that's important to talk about. I think. I was yeah. Like, Here we we'll, go. We'll get to it. Get Tim in the door. No Tim. It would. It would have been brilliant if at the end Tim shows up and it's Bob Hope. 
Um, or, or Bing Crosby. No, it would have been great if it was Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> yes, and Bob Odenkirk no, hugs, hugs uh, Jane and Brig and says, My little wind. <laughs> that's exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, this is not. In quite, my head, Canon, that's how this movie ends. It's, it's not quite little women, but certainly it's Anne and her two daughters, Jane and Bridget, who I believe goes by Brig. They keep calling her Brig, that's her nickname. Yes. Um, and because of the fact Tim's gone, there's no income regularly coming into the household besides probably some money from the army um, that he, he's forwarding back to them. Um, he, she needs to come up with some kind of, of income, so she decides to let out a room in the house, and they let it out to the uh, the individual TJ referenced at the top of the uh, episode, Colonel Smollett, played by Monty Woolley, um, who we'll talk more in a little bit. Uh, he's kind of starts off, he's, he's a bit irascible. That's the best way to describe him at the he's moment. He's a dick. Yeah. And the Hilton ladies also, that they had also receive a visit from Tim's uh, best friend, uh, Tony Willette, who's a bit of a ladies' man and openly pining for Anne, um, kind of shamelessly. It's really, really uncomfortable. Some best friend. Dude. Yeah, like, it's uncomfortable yeah. to watch. As soon as the guy goes off to war, he's like moving in on his wife. And then like, he's like, come on, guy. And if I can't get with you, your daughter's hot for 17. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's, it's. <laughs> Um, played by Joseph Cotton, who yeah. we've uh, already seen this series. Our guy, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, the hero who saves Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight and uh, is Orson Welles' erstwhile best friend and nemesis in Citizen Kane. I wonder if he slept yeah. with uh, one of Charlie Kane's wives while Charlie Kane went away. <laughs> it's, 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 we're going to have to talk about Tony because there's a whole bunch yeah. of uncomfortable uncom- scenes and T- moments Tony's, Tony's involving Tony. Uh-huh. We. We also get uh, Colonel Colonel Smollett's corporal grandson, Bill, who has a very strained relationship with his grandfather show up. Uh, Bill's played by uh, Robert Walker of Strangers on a Train fame. Uh, huh. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. The, a young Robert Walker who, um, we'll get into more of this, at the time of production, he's actually married to Jennifer Jones, who plays Jane, the eldest daughter. Um, okay. So, and they're the ones who strike up a bit of a romance uh, during the go. film before he himself is deployed. Well, I mean, all that in a tractor, all that steamy chemistry was all over the screen. I don't know about you guys, but I was like, "Whoo!" Yeah, there's there's some real hot hay action. <laughs> there's a roll in the hay. Oh, it's a hay. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a roll in the hay. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe not the way you're thinking, but there it's there. That's exactly right. If it sounds like we're we're kind of beating around the bush regarding the plot, it's partially because there really isn't one. The film's just meandering along for three hours, um, sometimes in with entirely random scenes thrown in, like snapshots in a photo album, showcasing the everyday lives of those left behind during World War II, which is, I think, Josh, to your point, uh, right before we started the podcast, is an important um, note here for the film, the fact that this film is definitely about World War II and specifically the home front. Everybody left back at home and, and what their lives are like. Um, but to that end, at three hours, it's really demanding an awful lot without any plot. To Ken's point real quickly, the opening before the opening credits, the prologue title card reads, This is a story of the unconquerable fortress, colon, the American home, ellipsis, 1943. And... You know, I kind of rolled my eyes at that, but at least it tells you up front, like, this is, that is very much what it is. That is very much what the film's about. Um, Yeah. And I I guess, again, we can get into this later, but I think that its length, there's there's a purpose to its length. 
You know, like, I'm sure for these women, being home without their husband and father is interminable. And so, like, the movie kind of is trying to give you their experience best it can, which in this case is just being a little interminable, mm. <laughs> if I may. Yeah, you you get the you get that experience a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of anticipation, a lot of anticipation for something to happen. Um, we're, we're we're hiding a little bit. Of- it notably opens within minutes of Tim, the husband, leaving. Yes, and then it ends. Spoiler alert: the second they get word that he's coming home, mm-hmm. so it is like that's the scope of the movie and that's like why it's called what it's called and why it's as long as it is right you know, well I, we're, at least that's, that was my take i was just about to say we're, we're covering up a key aspect the title is since you went away and that might be the last time i i utter the the title during this recording but it's called that because a lot of the film uses voiceover from ann hilton so claudette colbert colbert's voice um reciting to us what she's either putting down in, in, in her diaries or notes or what she's writing in letters to send to her husband, Tim. So a lot of what we're seeing is theoretically things that she's writing about uh, in his absence. Since he went away. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. This film is directed by John Cromwell, um, who did, does anybody know the, the distinction for John? Uh, that would be James Cromwell's father. Is he related to James? That's yes. Dad. Really? Yes, he is. Wow. I was just totally throwing that out there. Yep. Holy shit. Yeah, John Cromwell started out as a stage actor in 1905. Not not even kidding. He was in the the original stage adaptation of Little Women. Um, so the guy's been, at this point. My Little Women. He's been around for quite a while at this point. Um, he's also. Does that make James a, Cromwell a Nepo baby then? I don't. Absolutely. Uh, well, his, his mother was an <laughs> actress. Yes. Uh, I looked it up. His mother was his an actress. His father directed a Best Picture nominee. Of course he's of course he's a Nepo baby. And James Cromwell, as we all know, of course of Babe and L.A. Confidential fame, but he's also very, very much an outspoken, um, not only liberal, but uh, conservationist, environmentalist. He has definitely... Uncle Owen on succession. Yeah. Yeah. And um, his father, John, was also a very liberal liberal democrat um during the new new deal era so liberal as a matter of fact that john cromwell is one of the hollywood filmmakers who was targeted during the house on american activities committee's uh hunt for uh communists and ultimately was blacklisted so the 1950s were not a good decade for john cromwell and he ultimately right right after he came back from being blacklisted he made a few films and then just retired and went back to working exclusively uh, in the theater. So um, not the most auspicious of endings to his career, unfortunately. Not not due to anything he did wrong, obviously, but due to a dark point in American history. Um, that said, at this point, the 1940s, he's obviously doing okay because the studios have are, are giving him films like Since You've Been Away, Since You Went Away. There it is again. Um and yeah, nominated for Best Picture. So John Cromwell popping up here, having directed one of the five nominees. Was he? He was not in director though. He was not nominated. I don't believe he was no. ever nominated for Best Director. Who? So, so the five didn't line up. Who took a spot? Oh, Otto Preminger for Laura and Alfred Hitchcock yep. for Lifeboat. Mm-hmm. I guess took yeah. his spot. Okay, just checking. Yep. Um, the film, as I've mentioned already, uh, stars Claudette Colbert as Anne Hilton. She's a decade removed from her Oscar-winning role in It Happened One Night. 
Um, I'm not sure. Have you guys seen that movie? I have. I, I oh, quite, it's awesome. I, quite, I love that I movie. quite enjoy it. And I, I saw it many, many years ago when I was 18. And like I really enjoyed it when I was 18, which I think is saying something. Yeah. I watched the movie from the 30s when I was 18. I watched it by myself, and I thought, oh, this is great. Of course. That's, so. that's one that I think holds up. Like I think it is a quote-unquote serious film people movie, but I think that's one that people who oh, are yeah. like, oh, I don't really like old movies, you could be like, no, 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 but watch this one. Like I, I think I agree. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's an approachable. Yes. It's an approachable serious film person kind of movie and from the old also, days. Also, like the number of cartoon characters I've seen stick their leg out and lift something to reveal a stocking and a high heel to, in order to hitchhike on a road, whether it be Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or a thousand other cartoon characters, they all owe that to Claudette Colbert in It Happened. I'm glad I, you, I did that just this past week. It still works. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned it, Josh, <laughs> because. One of my favorite points in this movie is the cheeky little nod to her role in It Happened One Night in this film. Wait, what when was it? Joseph Cotton shows up as Tony Paulette, and he shows up with a proposed Join the Navy poster in which he's oh, drawn Claudette yeah, yeah. yeah. Colbert's character, Ann okay. Hilton, with her yes. really short skirt pulled up showing the tops of her stockings. And I didn't put that together. I loved, I loved wow, it because it's a yeah. little, just a little nod to It Happened yeah, One Night. Absolutely. Um, absolutely yeah this is actually this is the she actually gets an Oscar nomination for best actress for this movie it's her last of three nominations she wins for her first it happened when it was her first go around with the Oscars Um, I'm not sure what your experience is with Claudette Colbert Um, personally I've seen it happen one night and after that I off the top of my head can't think of anything immediately that I've seen her in so I couldn't name another movie she's in besides these two um, I I know she's in the much better I she's in the Palm Beach story, which I think I saw bits and pieces of years ago on TCM, but it's kind of a soap opery drama yeah. from the late thirties that uh, I could give oh. her, give or take. She's in Cleopatra per her Wikipedia page, uh, nineteen thirty four version of Cleopatra, uh, not the Liz Taylor. I was going to say Cleopatra. I've never yeah. seen it, but um, uh, that I I completely forgot about the uh, thirty four version. But oh, it's a Cecil B. DeMille, mm-hmm. Cecil B. DeMille joint. Yeah. Um. Do you know? Do you know when? What year she died? Uh. Probably. Oh, uh, probably late eighties, early nineties. Nineteen ninety six. Oh, holy shit! Yeah, a woman who won Best Actress in nineteen thirty four lived to nineteen ninety six. That's yeah. just wild to me. I don't know. That makes sense. I'm just wild by the passage of well, time. Well, think about Louise Rainier, the the random back to you know two time Oscar winning actress for who won Best Actress twice. Then she retired in the early forties, and then she died what within the last decade. At well, 100 and, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Angela Lansbury, and she just passed last year, right? That's true. Yeah. Yep, she just it is, passed it is wild, she just, though, to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, October 2022, having started her career in uh, summer of 1944. It's, uh, yeah. So some of these actors, it's fun to see uh, how many or who man, manages some longevity to their career. Um, I want to. I want to go next if we can move over because it's not just Claudette Colbert. She's a, she's admittedly the the definitely our guide through this movie. The film literally starts out with a voiceover. And as much as I love her in It Happened One Night, I feel like the voiceover in the opening is doing an awful lot of the legwork that she's not doing with her face. Yeah. Like it, it's basically there to minimize how much she has to act, or at least if she's going to overact visually, we're getting all the information we need from her voiceover work. I, that said, I do like the absolute beginning of the film, the transition from from the dog to the letter, 
explaining that uh, Tim is is being has been called up and he's being deployed. The date he's he's leaving, uh, as well as the the date on the calendar, the date the the fact that it is in fact the day he's supposed to be leaving, um, and then the photo of of Anne and the girls and. Um, I like the setup. I like the initial introduction. Yeah. Okay, we know exactly what's happening. The car pulls up outside the well, window, and in she comes. There's like a pan over, like a in in like the living room or something, where it shows like a picture of them on their wedding day, and then it shows like mm-hmm. baby shoes and like yep. baby music plays, and like it's just kind of like setting the scene for you. I think it's yeah, I agree. It's pretty well done, efficient. Um, as Ken was saying with the voiceover, I think it's doing similar work that we pointed out and gently criticized his kind of sign of the times that's in Gaslight and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where uh, characters will just verbally externalize things that we might in contemporary pictures uh, suggest through associative editing or, you know, other techniques. So Mm -hmm. there is at the beginning a lot of her being like, oh, Tim, I'm so upset you're gone. And, you know, I think now... um, Movies rely on audiences being able to kind of put those things together a little bit more efficiently, if that's a generous enough reading of that. Yeah, I I agree overall. There was like one moment where uh, Anne, Claudette Colbert, and Jane. Jane, Jennifer, yeah, the older daughter. Jennifer Jones. Uh, they're making breakfast for the colonel, and Anne is like scooping ground coffee into the coffee pot, scoops one, and then is about to put in a second scoop, but then like decides against it. Oh, puts, it, mm-hmm. puts the second scoop back in the in the can. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, they don't hang a lantern on that, but it's like her rationing. Yeah. But then like maybe 30 seconds, later, 30 seconds later, they do hang a lantern on it because uh, the colonel only has one egg for his breakfast. And Jennifer Jones is like, oh, I guess they're, they're rationing hens or whatever. Like, <laughs> um, But, you know, there was like one moment where they didn't hang a lantern on it and just let, let the audience draw that conclusion themselves, I guess. Yeah. Talking for a moment about... Jane, um, played by Jennifer Jones. Um, it's interesting here because this film is released uh, at, at a time in which Jennifer Jones is the reigning Best Actress winner, having won the previous year oh. for 1943's The Song of Bernadette. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen that film. I know it's about um, the the young woman who allegedly experienced visions of, of the Blessed Virgin Mary in France back in the mid-19th uh, century. Um, so it's a drama. She does. She wins the Oscar before this, and at the time of of you uh, since you went away, she's actually married to Robert Walker, who plays Bill, Colonel Smollett's grandson, and her love interest in the film. So it's a bit of an interesting uh, behind the scenes situation because not only are they married, they are um, actively separated during production of this movie from one another due to her leaving him for David Oselznick, the producer of said film. Oh, that's right. Her, her next husband. Yes. Oh. Her next husband is David Oselznick. Yes. Um, yeah. And so he... Sh- Dude, where's that movie? I want to watch the movie of the behind the scenes of making this movie. <laughs> it's, there's some serious drama. Um, the, the, the sad thing is, like, they, they met um, as students at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. They got married in the late 30s. They have a couple kids. They get to Hollywood. She wins her Oscar and starts an affair with one of Hollywood's biggest producers and leaves her husband. And he's in this film having to share romantic scenes with her while they're in the middle of a separation and divorce from one another. And it's just, it's so awkward when you know that information and you're watching the movie. And unfortunately I knew that information before watching the movie. Um, That's a tougher role in the hay. Yes. 
Yes. Well, it also make it, it also probably makes for a much more enjoyable shoot when he has to press the button to send her over that hay, revol- <laughs> yeah. whatever that that machine is that, that flips her over into the pile of hay. Um, and then she gets a telegram. And she's like, "Oh no, he's dead." <laughs> that makes things easier. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, we didn't mention it. Bill gets deployed eventually during the movie. Um, it and, and almost immediately arrives to the war and dies. Um, meanwhile, at some point during the film, uh, Anne's beloved husband, Tim, goes missing in action. And that creates one of the complications in the story that is resolved at the end. TJ mentioned they get word that he's on his way home, um, to, much to the, the, the happiness of the Hilton women. Um, but yeah, the fact that Robert Walker uh, and Jennifer Jones are actively courting one another in the film while they're in the middle of a divorce and separation, that really, really screwed up Robert Walker personally for the rest of his relatively short life. He died shortly after making Strangers on a Train, um, mm-hmm. and it was due to a, a very unfortunate combination of barbiturates and heavily, uh, heavy, heavy drinking because... Uh. After this divorce, he became an alcoholic. So, um, yeah, the events taking place off screen related to this movie, um, have an unfortunate long term impact on, uh, the young Mr. Walker. Um, so not to be a downer at this point in the podcast, but just bringing that up while watching this dramatic film about these people, this is going on for a couple of the actors who lead, uh, much of the action. Uh, we, we mentioned earlier Joseph Cotton appearing, though, as uh, Tony Willette. Talk about romance on screen, or attempted romance, perhaps. Uh, he's playing the best man to Tim Hilton, good friend of Ann Hilton, and it's clear Tony really, really wishes that things had ended differently, and he had won Ann over rather than Tim, right? Because, oh, it, awkward. Yeah, he, he doesn't hide the fact that he really, really wants Ann. <laughs> I think right away he comes in and he's like, oh, it's your number two guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he was the best man of their wedding. And yeah. Yeah. And she's, she doesn't, I don't want to say she flirts with him, but she doesn't really push it. She, she kind of just, oh, that's really just, encourage him that much. it's just Tony being Tony kind of yeah. thing. And you're like, no, lady, oh, you have an issue. There's a problem here. Um because he is clearly hung up on her to the point that he has no serious, he has no commitment, he has commitment issues, and has no serious relationship with other women. As we repeatedly see the two of them at dinner in the steakhouse, and then at the dance later, there are other women who just kind of like, inter- Oh, they're throwing themselves interrupt at him. He's the just com- like, shut up. Yeah, they interrupt <laughs> the conversation, and clearly are like, you know, ex, ex-girlfriends or ex-fuck buddies, or something, because, uh, Jeez, Ken. <laughs> that, that's, the, he's got so wow. many of them. They're just coming out of the woodwork at some point. Um, Cotton, as we mentioned during the Gaslight episode, uh, he's on a roll. Uh, this is, he's still, this is, he's got, he's got this. He's got Gaslight the same year. He's had Citizen Kane, Magnificent Amberson, Magnificent Amberson, Shadow of a Doubt, all within this three year, three or four year period. Um, and yeah, he's, this is, this is an interesting role because it's, obviously a bit different from what we saw in gaslight where he's the good guy mm-hmm. he's obviously the rom- he's got a romantic aspect to his character in that film as well he's attracted to ingrid bergman and he wins her over we assume in the end based on the kiss that uh has dame may witty going oh, wow or uh, that's 
that's a completely different kind of 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 um, kind of infatuation than we see in this movie, where he's just openly flirting with a married woman, and it's just oh, it's incredibly awkward during the first half of the film. Whenever we see him, he's just unabashed. And to TJ's yeah, point, not just a married woman, his best friend, his best friend's wife. Everything I've seen him in, he. Uh, is someone like in terms of being an older time actor that he does have that style that kind of you know it comes out of RKO he has that like radio voice style but I think he his charm and his allure to the camera really um, carries over like I I am always happy to see Joseph Cotton even when he's being rascally um, I think he's best when he's kind of the beleaguered best friend like in Citizen Kane or in The Third Man but even when he's being I'm kind of a pervy rascal in this. Um, <laughs> I, I'm always I'm always happy to see him show up. He is yeah, but oh, he's just he's such a shameless cad in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- shout out! There's only one person in the film who, I guess, this is actually to your point, TJ. There's one character in the film who sees through him, and that's Fidelia, played by Hattie yeah. McDaniel. And I want to talk more about her in a, mm. in a little bit. Another familiar face. Yes, most famous, of course, for playing Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Um, but I, I want to talk Oscar about I want to talk about yeah. that specifically a bit later in in the recording because um, this movie is trying really hard to to pick up where maybe Go with the Wind uh, ended as far as as being a successful epic I think with Oselznik obviously producing um, that said she's the only character that seems to see through Tony at least the first time we see him um, she doesn't much care for him she doesn't really trust him. Um, but similar, actually, not all that dissimilar from the way Rhett Butler wins her over and Gone with the Wind, uh, Tony Willett uh, provides her with a gift. He sketches her in a really flattering portrait, and suddenly that wins her over because his, his charm and his, his gift uh, that's a, suddenly I think that's a very quite likes him. effective scene, um, particularly with her acting. Um, the expression that's on her face there and the way that I think she really seems, sees seen and valued. And you know that as well as later when she gets kind of a gift sent from Tim from overseas. And she says, like, even when he's off fighting those devils, he still remembers me. Yeah. Um, I think she's really, really good in those scenes in what I think is kind of a um, gross and thankless role. In well, some places. I don't know why she's here. Honestly, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why this role is. Why this well, character's here? The at reason all. I think the reason is because Ocel, uh, he's literally taking this is Mammy basically, not in a slave role. Like she's still the maid, she's still yeah. the a housekeeper, and she's the cook and everything. She's she's the the employee in the household, but she's depicted as a member of the family, and it's. Kind of a thankless role, but Hattie McDaniel does a really a lot of really good in those roles, and unfortunately, she's a bit typecast because yeah. this isn't the last or only time outside of this and Go with the Wind that she plays these roles. Well, and you know, something I didn't think they needed to do was she has a number of malapropisms throughout the movie that are then like played for comedy. You know, at the end when she's able to guess what the colonel is doing during charades, and then she's like, yeah. "I guess I'm just psychotic," and they're like, "Oh." <laughs> And it, yeah, um, psychopathic. I think. Yeah, there sense. you go. It's, um, it that's not good. That's not good. Um, yeah, it, I, I didn't like it. That. It's it's like I said, it's a thankless role, and it's it's the kind of role that would absolutely destroy a movie if you attempt to do something like that today. It would not be. It's not at all acceptable. No. Um, 
she's it's a it's a stereotyped uh, kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, shout out to Hedy McDaniel. She did earn that Oscar for Gone with the Wind and and shook up the industry a bit. Um, but here she is again, Fidelia, and like I said, she's basically playing the same role. It's very reminiscent of Mammy, um, just in a different era, different war, um, and she's actually getting paid uh, here. That's an improvement, I suppose, obviously on Mammy, but otherwise well, same character. The actress, because the character, again, she's a member of the family so much so that she, even though they can't afford her anymore when money's tight in the war effort, she decides to just hang around and work part-time for free because she likes them so much. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's oh, that's even darker. I forgot about the fact that she's just sticking around. Uh, well, and it's it's under the, the it's, well, it's under the guide of guise of them being like, oh, we'll let you stay here, but like she stays in her capacity as their maid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's like this is eighty years removed from the Civil War, but that's it's still acceptable. Like nobody watching this movie would have thought anything of that character and that role. Like they've got a housekeeper, okay, sure. and she's she's a member of the household and family. What one thing about this character, in this performance, I think she's very good in this. Um, like as you guys are saying, despite being a thankless role, there, I think one of her early scenes where she's talking to um, Claudette, Claudette Colbert about you know coming back part time, you know, without being paid, and like she's lit really weird, yeah, and like it's kind of like, and um, I had the thought that um. Uh, I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing something that I heard Barry Jenkins say at a Q&A once when I saw him in person that uh, film was invented so that uh, white people could make home movies with their children. And so film was not invented to, a, to be able to show black skin properly. And so like in 1944, I'm not that surprised that they may not know exactly how to light Hattie McDaniel properly because she's lit very very strangely in a few scenes it's hard for me to notice in in 340p but um. (laughs) (laughs) well to your we we i don't know if you want to talk about it now one of the i think one of the strengths of the film generally speaking is the cinematography for in this movie there are some really nice scenes now granted i i also want to discuss about whether or not some of the decisions made are kind of I'm not sure that what the purpose is, to be honest. Like, I, I'm not sure why they chose to do... Like, the scene where they're at the dance, and the slow dance starts up. Jane and Tony move out onto the dance floor, and we get the wide um, aerial shot of the dance floor. I'm not sure what's going on with the lighting and shadows there. I don't know what the purpose is or why they've got that. Of all the dancers, the couples, moving slowly onto the dance floor, spread out just perfectly so that they create the shadows in the arched light there's mm-hmm. there's arched arches yeah, of light on the floor maybe it's to look cool that's just it i think it's just a stylistic thing and it, well, I, this was, it just was i'm it not Sta- sure why it's stanley there. cortez lit this film yes that's that's the thing that's a, it, the film he, um, benefits from a really effective cinematographer actually there are two it's stanley cortez and lee lee Gorms who um, photographed a bulk of gone with the wind yeah and stanley cortez did um night of the hunter and Correct. Charles Lawton said mm, that he was wow. he was the only cinematographer he now Charles Lawton only directed one film, but in all the films that Charles Lawton was in, he said it was he was the only cinematographer he ever worked with that really understood shadows. Um, oh, and mm, I, I yeah. don't. He it's clear watching this film, both Cortez and Gorms, who have they both have uh, extensive resumes proving that they know what they're doing. 
Cortez also did the Magnificent Ambersons with Orson Welles. And Lee Gorms, not only did he photograph a bulk of Glow with the Wind, he did Shanghai Express starring Orlena Dietrich back in the early 30s. Uh, he did oh, the yeah. original version of Nightmare Alley. So these are guys who are used to doing films that require playing with shadows and light. They are they're not strangers to this. They are early experts and um, innovators in this area. I'm just not sure to what for what purpose they're making some of the decisions that they make in this movie. And it might be on Cromwell more than them. It might just be, hey, we can do this. Oh, sure, yeah, let's do it. I don't really know. It looks good, but I don't know to what to what end. It doesn't appear that they're using the photography to aid in the progression of the film so much as just, hey, I think this shot will look nice. And that has its place, yeah. but it throws you off, particularly in a film where I feel like from scene to scene, I'm asking myself, why is this scene here? Or why is it taking so long? Yeah. At three hours long, I mean, the movie, first of all, well, it has an overture to start off the movie. And nothing, and intermission. nothing screams, we're going to be here a while, like an overture, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. Like, the moment it comes on, you're like, I'm not leaving anytime soon, am I? Like, I'm not out of here. This is if, this is going to take some time. Um, yeah, oh my God. If I can defend that a little bit, um, even though I did find overture. it, I did find it a little bit tedious. To Josh's point earlier, the the kind of endurance and the staying uh, power or staying laziness of it, however you want to put it, the duration I think is a part of what the film is going for and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's you know successful in that way but it also sets it, it, it the, the premise boxes itself into an interesting corner which is your protagonist is somebody who didn't make a decision who's suffering a decision made really by internationally made by countries a victim of circumstance with no goal really to achieve it's not as though and i know this didn't happen in history but like i'm just spitballing here it's not as though you know she has to do a b and c and then her husband comes home her thing is kind of just wait and keep the you know kind of american home in place as best one can and that could be you know raising the daughters that could be uh keeping the house uh, making the house payments, having to go to work, those sort of things. But traditionally, as we've talked in a lot of movies, you're going to have, you know, protagonist, protagonist makes decision, protagonist has goals and end goals, and we know the breadcrumbs to get there. And the setup of this movie, I don't think invites that structure, which, you know, we could say, well, then, you know, that, that was a poor decision to set the movie up that way. But I think that's part of why it just feels kind of like... Um, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And then there's also like a rotating door of men who kind of remind the family of their missing husband and father, mm-hmm. whether that be the colonel, who's the first. It's, it's all military right. men. Yeah. It's a revolving door of military men. And the first one's the colonel, who's like, you know, someone, he's a retired colonel, who's like someone that uh, Tim could be if he survives the war and makes it home. And then there's uh, Tim's best friend, um, Tony. Tony, who is like again a, a pretty analogous stand-in for for Tim, and then there's there's young Bill who uh, you know has the hots for Jane, and they have a budding romance that could potentially be a new Tim and Anne in the future. Uh-huh. So, um, and I also think it's interesting that like I think the movie actually does a really good job of introducing us to these fresh-faced, bushy-tailed, bright-eyed 
soldiers who are about to ship off and how like they're also like they they all read so young and they all read pretty endearing and like that that kid Johnny we meet I think at the dance who's like who's is trying to get an advertising his father's the grocer um we meet him he's very yeah. polite very nice and and like 10 minutes later we find out oh yeah he died yeah literally he died with like the the, the first the, within hours of arriving he died yeah. he's dead not, not within then, hours he dies in an accident literally on the base where the dance is at because they're leaving the go. dance yeah. and he would he, he was supposed yeah. to take off from the base where the dance is he literally while they're dancing dies somewhere on the base sure yeah and then there's like an elongated version of that with bill again spoiler bill doesn't make it but like bill's in the movie for a lot longer and builds a lot more of a relationship with our characters and then we find out he also does not make it and so it's all just like kind of building the the tension suspense of tim the husband father mm-hmm. and eventually we get news that he's missing in action that's when our uh, our um our intermission yeah. is right, right when we find out he's missing in action and then the catharsis of the ending is he's coming home he's okay yeah, and the, it's taking place over just short of a year because it's January twelfth is the departure date at the beginning of the film. That's the date on the calendar that we see, and then the film ends at Christmas. To TJ's point, that's when they're celebrating the the, the telegram or word that they got that he's on his way back. Um, so this is basically more or less a year, nineteen forty three, beginning to end in the life of the Hilton family. Um, this is the the obviously a part of the family that didn't benefit from the hotels. So uh, regular regular Midwestern uh, every everyday kind of yeah. family. Also, think it's notable that it's 1943 and not like 1942, just because like we're getting into like the second and third year of the wars. So, like the interminability aspect, I think, is starting to set in a little bit, um, which I think is kind of takes it a more meandering tone than maybe a movie at the start of the war. My right. Opinion, you know? Well, during the f- film, Bill dies in Salerno, Italy. And when Tony, yeah. the next time we see Tony after Bill has died, mm. he's also been through Salerno. Yeah. So this is, as far as timing it with the war, this is obviously coming out the summer the D-Day happens. But the Allied forces just arrive on the continent in full force via Italy from North Africa in 43. So things are ramping up that the military um, is advancing now onto the continent itself. Um, they are pushing back and there is actual real world fighting between U.S. forces and German forces over in Europe. So yeah, there's, there's certainly, unfortunately, a kind of slap of reality um, for a lot of Americans back home in 1943. This is this is the first real year of the war that Americans are feeling um, a, a real loss. And, and this came out in July of 44, Correct. Right? Yeah, so this... Like late right. July? And word, word is just coming back, honestly, of D-Day. Like, they're just getting word over the last few weeks. Which took place about six six or seven weeks right. earlier. D-Day took place, I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah, June 6th. So, uh, so yeah, the, this is... The, and, and word trickled much slower back then. So the events of D-Day yeah. is still very fresh on the minds of Americans back home. I wonder if that's affecting how people feel about this movie, about a, a, a turning tide, a, a positive in turning tide of the war, in Europe at least. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, I mean, the film ends on a hopeful note, obviously, for the family, because he's coming home. And you hope, given what's going on in the real world, there's, there's most likely a sense of that generally among the population. Um, so the film ends the right way, because you certainly, for any audience going into a film, uh, so heavily 
connected to the war, you've got to send everybody out on a hopeful note. You you totally can't have movies of this era ending on a dour note. Today, we kind of take for granted that films don't always end up end with a, a with a happy kind of resolution to everything. Um, but at this time, during World War II, when it was literal literal total war, um, and everyone is connected to it in some way and affected by it in some way. Um, you can see where this film, despite the trials and tribulations that the characters go through, despite the loss that they experience in Bill's death and some of the other characters, to your point about the grocer's son, I actually felt genuine, genuine feelings of regret and sadness when we see the grocer the next time at the movie theater and they're watching the, yeah. the news before the movie starts. And he gets up and he's excusing himself to leave yeah. because he can't handle it. And the scene where he's coming up the aisle and he gets back to the door and the light shines on his face and he pauses for just a second. It's a really beautiful moment, but so, so sad. And the actor pulls it off really yeah. well. So let me ask you this. And the the question is neutral, but I kind of have a direction to go with it. Is this propaganda? Letterbox- the reviews in Letterboxd all seem to call it propaganda. And maybe a little bit. I mean, it's certainly it, it's certainly um, trying to galvanize the war effort and trying to show the sacrifices that people are making at home as like admirable yeah. and um, necessary. And anyone who I think the colonel who is like the, the colonel and Agnes Moorhead, who are less into making the sacrifices, are shown as negative for doing so. Mm-hmm. And the people that are making sacrifices are the heroes of the story. So, I don't know if you'd call that propaganda, but it's from from, from some perspective. Yeah, it's not it's not as I think as overtly um, advertising for the war effort as some other films maybe are. Um, that said, I I think definitely it's trying to maybe guilt's the wrong word, but it's definitely emphasizing the fact that you need to play your part because Anne Hilton to her. To, to the point we talked about earlier, she lets Colonel Smollett rent the room in their house because she needs money, right? Well, she needs money because she doesn't have any income and she's not going out to actively join the workforce yet. She does in the, by the end yeah. of the film. And she also specifically is looking for an officer to let the room Correct. Through. That's what she puts in the paper. She wants an officer. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, TJ, uh, there are a few more more than a few uh, references to Japanese people that are oh oh the cop favorable. Oh my yeah. god, I forgot. There's the cop and also the bowling alley. Did you see the bowling alley graphic? I don't remember the bowling alley graphic. Yes. I just I okay. Well, we can cover the cop oh. first. Uh, the cop the cop pulls over Joseph Cotton and Claude yes. Bear for no reason at all, other than he he's just, like yes. bored <laughs> one night and uh, bored and lonely. And uh, he, he actually references the gas rationing. He said, ever, ever, I'm paraphrasing, ever since the gas rationing, there are a few people out here, few, few people for me to pull over, so I'm bored. Um, and then he, before Joseph Cotton drives away, says, like, you know, go kill we- some Japanese people, because he doesn't say Japanese people. And then he pulls his eyes to mm-hmm. make them squint, which is, wow, really weird some to see. casual yeah. racism just thrown yeah. into the movie. So, uh, let me, okay, let, let me word this very... Hold on, okay. and, but okay. then... Real quick, uh, and then the, in the bowling alley scene, unless I'm mistaken, I believe the 
graphic of the bowling pins that are like hanging up on the wall have a caricature of Japanese faces on the bowling oh. pins, and it says "knock them all oh. down" or something oh. like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I might be misreading, but that's what I saw in the 1080p that I was watching it in. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got lost I, in my pixels. I think uh, I must have looked down and uh, at my notes at that moment, so I must have missed the the bowling alley, um, the, the pins, but the the cop. I, I could oh, be man. wrong. I could no, be you, wrong, you, but like given given the earlier interaction with the cop, I kind no, of you like, might be I'm right. Kind of on alert for that. Kind I, of I, you might be right. That know. entirely makes sense. And to be, to that point, uh, they're both reflective of what's actually going on in, in certain circles among people in the real world. Like, yeah, there's so, casual so, racism uh, coast to coast for sure. I mean, for God's sakes, we got concentration camps out in the West. Yeah. So this is one of the things I wanted to say with particularly the cop scene, um, and I'm going to word this very carefully. It's it's clearly and obviously racist. And when I was watching it, I was like, oh my gosh, like, remember, look how old all these old movies are so racist, right? But then I, I thought about it some more and I was like, I think the inclusion of that is important, even though it's objectionable in content, because, you know, we all lived through uh, 9-11. We didn't live through World War II. Ken did, but Josh and I did not. Um, and, <laughs> and even now in 2023... There are a lot of people in the United States who have some really horrible opinions and caricatures of people from the Middle East having to do with 9-11. Immediately after 9-11, there were way more people that had that. And so I think the inclusion of that cop scene in the movie, while shocking and objectionable, is also representing something about the home front that the rest of the movie is pretty... um, glorifying of the efforts and what everybody's doing at home. And this small little bit, I think at least shows that um, <laughs> there, there were also horrible prejudices that were going there too, that gave the movie a little bit more complexity than I initially thought it might've had. Do you think that complexity was intended by the filmmakers or do you think contemporaneously they really were like, you know, F Japanese people and that kind of stuff? Uh, I have no, this is strict speculation. I think it's the second. I don't... The the movie doesn't really seem to me to be trying to do a, like, you know, remember, don't get bigoted people, given the way it treats the Hattie McDaniel character. Um, It it makes for an interesting... To to your point, it makes for a very interesting time capsule mm -hmm. of 1944 and, like, contemporaneous expression of what American people might have been thinking during the war. But also, like, it kind (laughs) of... Imagine the laugh line in a theater in 1944. Oh, yeah. That probably absolutely got, you know, like, absolutely it probably got applause yeah. honestly like which is again rough. yeah um so i, I want to keep if it's okay i want to keep pushing a little bit on the propaganda thing sure because the the question comes from a reaction i had when i watched it and when i opened it up on youtube first of all some of the youtube comments are like uh back when back when women knew how to support their man and, so, and i was like oh my god um but then you get that title card I mentioned earlier about, you know, the home front and there's a lot of like, you know, the flag waving business. And I think that there's there's a through a 2023 lens, this looks really trite and jingoistic. But I think you really need to put on a 1944 lens where we were not. This is like pre U.S. military military industrial complex. And this was not the Vietnam War. This was not the right. invasion of Iraq, this was like an existential question of, is the world going to be run by Hitler or not? Um, right. And so I think 
you can read what would now seem to be kind of propagandistic or nationalistic a little bit more generously just because of the existential crisis that World War II represented. Um, along those lines, I was just sort of thinking, as because I imagine people thought of this as kind of wartime propaganda. And when I asked that question, that question, that word has a negative connotation, right? Nobody says, this is propagandistic and I love it, right? It's always used to, to kind of put something down. But I was trying to think of like, what is propaganda and how do you know when something's propaganda? And I just strictly speculated kind of two things. It depends on one, how direct or heavy the messaging is in balance with the aesthetics. So we think about something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest has a pretty strong, like anti-institutional message, but we wouldn't call it propaganda because the aesthetics of the film far overshadow like the, the speechifying of the film. And then I think the second thing is we use that phrase, this is propaganda, only to like the degree in which the reader or viewer shares, admires, or agrees with the message of the text. So again, we tend not to go, this is my favorite movie because it's propaganda and I agree with it 100%, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know, sure. Sorry for the monologue, but thoughts so on that? You, so you say, you're saying that people only use the term propaganda if it's something that they might not be comfortable with the message. Mess I think so. I think so. Well, okay. I, I, to your, I think I, I completely agree with you. And I hope, I hope everybody takes that takes films of the era, particularly this era. So the 1940s, early 1940s during world war two, I hope they're aware of the real world implications going on behind the scenes because propaganda at that time here in the U S and in the United Kingdom um, it's definitely different from what we would suggest uh, a film might have today when there's some kind of there's some kind of political uh, motivation uh, behind a film's message or, or um, basically the, the moral of the story so to speak at this time again it's total war everybody is impacted by this war and there is a real life struggle going on that is going to determine the future of the world as far as everyone is concerned. And it's not just, oh, well, this is what the government is telling us. This is what we're actually seeing. Because, of course, mm -hmm. by this time, the U.S. took so long to get into the war. By the time the U.S. is actually getting into the war, we don't have all that many allies left over in Europe who haven't been invaded by Germany already. So he's literally taking over. Hitler has spread. And Japan is just on the other end of things, decided they were going to try to distract the U.S. by getting us involved in a war in the Pacific. So the fact that it feels like, if you're in America, the enemy is on all sides of us, more or less. You're sending boys overseas, over the Atlantic to Europe, and we're sending them out to the Pacific to fight Japan. And it's all because of what? Because these other entities have decided that we're in the way. They don't want us to stop them from their mission of domination. I guess I can say this in the context of, of a possible propaganda, but also just in the context of just a movie about the home front in World War II. Uh, <laughs> a peek behind the curtain, we're recording this over Barbie Oppenheimer weekend. Yeah. So th this won't come out until September, but we're recording this. Uh, <laughs> While you all went to Barbenheimer, we watched Since You Went Away. <laughs> uh, I, I did go to Barbenheimer. I saw Barbie I on did. Thursday. I saw Oppenheimer on Friday. And I saw Since You Went Away on Saturday. But my point <laughs> is, seeing this in conjunction with Oppenheimer is pretty weird yeah, i bet both I like bet. um well i i guess like one thing i appreciate about the movie just in general is the fact that they cared to tell a story about the 
experience of American women during World mm-hmm. War II. That's the fact that they cared enough to tell a movie from that perspective I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. So, like, just on premise alone, I'm kind of, like, already on the movie side a little bit because I'm just kind of like, interested by that. And, like, Oppenheimer's a great film. I really loved it. And hopefully I'll have seen it a second or third time by the time this comes out. And I'll have a more uh, sophisticated take on it. But it is, like, very much... Uh, man-centric movie and like uh the emily blunt and florence Pugh do what they can but like there's there's not much as is the case for a lot of christopher movies there's not a lot of room for female characters there um so just like seeing a contemporaneous story uh about kind of the same thing which is like the what we're trying to do to win the war but from their perspective i thought was interesting just again on its face and from Claudette Colbert to Jennifer Jones, or, Jones, or, and yeah. oh, and we didn't mention Brig is played by Shirley Temple. Yeah, how have we how have we got fifty <laughs> minutes into this? We haven't mentioned Shirley Temple yet. Um, well, actually, I I do know how because she's a total nothing character in this. Basically, well, and, and part of that is because Shirley, while well, Shirley Temple is in this movie, she's like I think I looked it up. She's like sixteen or something when this movie is is being released. Um, it's hard to it's hard to fathom for anybody in 2023. Shirley Temple between 1934 and 1938 as a child actress was literally the number one film star at the box office in the mid 30s. Yeah. She was it. Yeah. She is the hottest thing at the box office, the biggest star. And now in the mid 40s, <laughs> in the it, it's true. In the mid 40s, hot as in money. Yes, hot as in money making, DJ. She was a child. <laughs> yes. That's, why I, made, I that's why I made a puzzled face. That was <laughs> Imagine the like face Paul Rudd makes in a lot of movies when people say weird things. That's the face I just made. But far less handsome. Uh, <laughs> she's but he, she's out of that. She's no longer the little kid. She's a teenager. Yes. And if you've ever if you know anything about Shirley Temple, she made literally half as many films after she was ten than she did before she was ten. And she made like thirty films before she was ten. So in the teen her teenage years, she's had a drop off. She's not be she's not in as many films. She's not the lead by any means. She's usually a small supporting role like she is in this movie, which is why by nineteen fifty, she retired at the age of twenty two from movies. Ugh, must be nice, dude. <laughs> um, I'm retired at twenty two. Speaking uh, of anybody, anybody knows about <laughs> anybody knows about history, she went on to become a US ambassador to both Ghana and Czechoslovakia. Um wow. So yeah. she's a diplomat later so in life. I think, much like Hattie McDaniel's character, there's no reason for her to be here. And I, I don't like mind, because like, I think this is a pretty um, shaggy... Man- we were talking about this shaggy mannering movie. It's like, not every character has to have like a specific point to them, I guess. But like, I, I, it's funny you say, that, Ken, that she's older than her child persona, which is true. She is older. You know, I, I wouldn't have known it was Shirley Temple if I didn't see the opening credits. Um, so she is older than I've ever seen her. And, but like, uh, here's a fun game. Take a drink every time Shirley Temple goes, oh, mother, and then <laughs> yes. cries into Claudette Colbert's shoulder because she does it probably six or seven times. And that's kind of like all her character does, more or less. And she still pouts her lips. She still, like, scrunches yeah. up her lips and does the thing she does as a little girl. Like, the little, oh, well, shucks kind of look. And she does it at yeah. the beginning of this movie when they're, for the first, like, emotional scene where they're all crying. When they come to the decision that they're going to let the room out. Um, rent the room, that is. Mm-hmm. She's, I, oh, I. Oh, mother, what would Pop think? <laughs> I, I looked over at Brittany and I'm like, at some point she's got to, she's got to 
at least accept the fact that she's not Shirley Temple anymore. Like, because if she does this the whole movie, it's going to be distracting. And she doesn't really let up. She does it the whole yeah. movie, pretty much. <laughs> she's yeah. just yeah, yeah. 16-year-old Shirley Temple. And it doesn't play like it does I, when she's five. I think the point of her character was to befriend that ragamuffin sociopath Gladys that pops up several times. <laughs> what the hell <laughs> is she doing here? <laughs> You're talking? I, I, I don't know. I have no idea what's up with You're, Gladys. <laughs> Brig has a friend, and she appears to be Brig appears to be the only neighbor girl. She appears to be the Brig appears to be the only person in this community that Gladys will talk to. Because fucking Gladys, Gladys is just like she's just hanging around. She cuts in and out, and there's that scene, that creepy scene where she's hiding in the bushes, and Colonel Smollett is outside, and like she spends the whole movie hiding <laughs> in the bushes or hiding behind something, and then sticking her dumb face out, <laughs> and then running away like a cockroach when you turn the lights on. <laughs> Not sure what's going on with her. I wanted there's sure like a title card at the end where they tell like what happened to the real people, and then it's like, and then Gladys killed four people and ate their faces. <laughs> like, <laughs> God, oh. Can I bring up Glad- someone else? Someone else I like in this movie. Sure. You mean, addi- you mean an addi- wait, You mean an addition to Gladys? <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a huge Gladys fan. <laughs> oh, uh, Agnes Warhead. So, uh, she she plays kind of the resident biatch in this movie, yeah. and uh, there's not a whole lot to her character, but, you know, uh, since we've done this podcast, I've seen her in two films that I hadn't seen before, being this and Johnny Belinda. Right. She's Oscar nominated for Johnny Belinda. She's not nominated for Since You Went Away, but she's nominated that year for Mrs. Parkington. Um, of course, she didn't win Best Supporting Actress for Johnny Belinda. She lost to that bitch Claire Trevor, to quote the <laughs> Letterboxd review. Um, but Listen to our Johnny Belinda episode to get that reference. Yeah, it's turning into Arrested Development. you got to go way back for it. Um, but I, I've seen her now in uh, those and the Magnificent Ambersons, and she's we, we got a re, uh, Citizen Kane reuniting with Joseph Cotton. And right. that's quite a range of performances, just the four of those. And I think she's... Like really good in all of them. She's she's really good. In yeah. She's a yeah. solid character actor. Unfortunately, there's also I feel like a habit to typecast her in biddies like this, where she's not a pleasant character. She kind she's, of has an RBF. She kind of does. Yeah, she, she's um, a she's a she's often playing some kind of snide, uppity woman who's overly critical of others. Like, she's snapping at everybody in Johnny Belinda. Yeah. She's not particularly likable as the aunt in that. She's just, she eventually comes around to supporting her niece, but mm-hmm. um, she's kind of, she's not pleasant. And here, Emily Hawkins is the gossipy, oh, yeah. holier-than-thou, better-than-everyone-else kind of woman who really doesn't do anything, which is to, to Anne Hilton mentions late in the film, when she finally, thanks to her daughter standing oh, no. up yeah. for herself... Um, she finally gets the wherewithal to stand up to Emily Hawkins, who has this kind of like control somehow over the ladies of the community. Nobody pushes back on her. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do like in Joseph Cotton's first scene though. I think uh, Agnes Moorhead and Claudette Colbert are, like out at a bar yes. or something, and Joseph Cotton walks up and just like stands right between them and puts his back to <laughs> Agnes Moorhead just so he can like chat up Claudette Colbert. And like it's really really yeah. rude, but because that character sucks, I, I'm like yeah, be rude to her. Honestly, I think that, isn't it the f- Maybe the first, or maybe it's the second time we see Agnes Moorhead in the movie at that point. I didn't think she was that particularly dislikable in that scene yet, because I kind of, 
I agree. I felt yeah, a little at the time. I was like, "What are you doing, Joseph Cotton?" But like, because of what happened later, in in hindsight, I'm like, "No, exactly." Know? Yeah. Later on, she revealed like, "The more we see her, the less the less you want to see of her." My favorite scene between the is also between the two of them later on, um, late in the film. The last time we see Agnes Moorhead when she shows up to the house, he's doing tricks. He's doing like magic tricks or illusions for everybody in the yeah. house, and he does one especially for her in which he flips her off. <laughs> but he manages to get it past the sensors because it's it's through a napkin. So he yeah, the, yeah. the trick is that he manages to put his finger through the napkin despite the fact that there's no hole in the napkin. But which finger yes, is but it? <laughs> it's clear from the outline of his hand which finger it is. And I, I did love the fact Michael. that they managed to get that slipped through the sensors. That's a, yeah, that's good. a funny little moment. Um, yeah, those two... Those, I, could, I honestly could watch another movie... Where you just get them going back and forth, I think, for maybe like an hour and a half. Other things have to play in the movie, but I'd, I'd enjoy them bantering back and forth much more. Um, and Moorhead, yeah. for all of the stuff she's doing here in the 1940s, um, I don't know if, I don't remember, we didn't discuss it in depth, but she's most, most remembered, I think, probably for playing Aunt Andorra in Bewitched in the 60s. Um, which is a, which is, I think, an opportunity for her to kind of branch out and do something different because that character is so colorful and, um, allowed to be a little wild and, and eccentric. Um, because in the forties, like I said, I, not that she isn't good. She's reliable in all of these roles, but she kind of gets typecast a bit. So I, I, seeing her in this movie, I wasn't at all surprised once we learned more about Emily Hawkins, what kind of character she's playing here. Um, I also want to uh, shout out, we, we've been dancing around the character, but Colonel William Smollett is played by Monty Woolley. Academy Award nominee. I am not a fan of this performance. Okay, so here's the thing. It's okay. First of all, um, Monty Woolley, I'm not sure your guys' experience with him, but the moment he shows up in this movie, he's always frustrated me as a character actor because literally all of the movies I've ever seen him in, I don't I don't much care for his, his role in the movie. Um and in this movie, he's not likable. As we said, the, the word that came to mind for me was irascible. But if you've ever seen The Man Who Came to Dinner, he is the titular man who comes to dinner. That film is one in which he is an insufferable, outlandish pain in the ass who slips and falls on a porch outside of a family he's visiting for dinner outside their home. He then convalesces with them for a few weeks because while the family wants him gone, they're afraid he'll sue them if they don't ensure he recuperates. So he literally gets, he stays around and is so frustratingly annoying. And then he is also in The Bishop's Wife, the Cary Grant Christmas classic, in which he plays an insufferable know-it-all professor. And again, here he's playing an insufferable asshole. And it's just every time I see him in a movie, I roll my eyes and hope he's not in much of it. And fortunately, he's not, he's not the central character in this movie and by the end he kind of has opened up a bit more the stuff with bill yeah yeah, in the last Um, well unfortunately that's the thing we don't really get a moment a proper moment between him and bill and we only the the we very meaningfully do not get him get a get that moment he tries to make that moment but he arrives at the station too late to see him and it's it's incredible it's I'm not sure I, I totally. I'm not sure I totally buy into it. I don't think Monty Woolley plays it very well, because the next time we see him in a scene really is after Bill. They learn of Bill's death, 
and he's talking he's got a scene with Claudette Colbert and Jennifer Jones and he's really it's a really lovely moment between him and Jennifer Jones when he embraces her but before that the his conversation with Claudette Colbert kind of leaves me a little cold I don't feel a whole lot of real genuine emotion and part of that is because throughout the film I just I don't buy the relationship between the grandfather and grandson it's all told to us really through other through the characters explaining their relationship and we only really get one scene with them and it's it's i'm not sure i really buy totally into this relationship so i don't end up feeling as bad for smollett as i think you're you're supposed to that's fair that's definitely fair tj any thoughts on on monty woolly or colonel smollett who we we've we've mentioned a few times yeah, I didn't really care for his performance. I thought he was pretty, even by like 1944 standards, he was pretty like community theatery, um, mustache, mustache <laughs> twirling villain. Uh, also, he was an asshole to the dog, and that's always a loss in my book. Not all. He came around at okay. the end. Okay, and he came around. He ca- said, "Come on, soda." Who cuts the cake before taking the candles out? Especially when there's like 86 of them in there. <laughs> Freaking monster. <laughs> And he was he was so he was so outraged that Hattie McDaniel bought the cake instead of baking it. Yeah, yeah there's that was like the the punchline of that. That's, there's something about the era that that's not the first time I've seen that in older films of this time period. Where if you buy if you bought a cake, um, it's kind of yeah, exactly bought. Yeah, if you particularly, I think it's usually if you've got like a cook or and I think it's an assumption that's really inappropriate. But if you've got a stay-at-home mom or a housekeeper slash cook, the expectation is that they bake the cake, not bought. Yeah. And you're not there's something wrong with you if you bought, like you're cheating. And that somehow plays as a bit of a joke in movies of the era, because I can't think off the top of my head of this I've seen it in, but it's happened before. Um that said, it happened can we night. come back to Soda, the dog? Yeah. Maybe the yeah. my favorite and the most genuine performance in the whole movie. That dog. I love his music cue. Yeah, that, <laughs> he's got like a he, there's like a tuba that plays every time he's on screen. That that dog nails every scene it's in. And I honestly, the most touching moment in the whole movie might very well be when he comes in to console Anne Hilton when she's crying about the telegram she got about Tim disappearing. That dog, I'm I've won me over every scene he was in. I'm, I'm loving it. Ken, all this dog does is lay down or get up from laying down, and he does it like six times. You're saying it's the best performance in the movie? I yeah, I'm sticking to it. Like, ouch. Okay, I know an honorary Oscar for soda. For if, you're, if we're t- hey, they've, they've got those honorary awards. Doesn't Can give out a, a canine Pomodoro or something? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Brandy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I believe, won it. The Palm to Off. Yeah, the Palm to There you go. Um, yeah, Soda. I don't know what the, the, the dog's actual name is. Maybe it is Soda. I don't know. But I enjoyed I enjoyed the role of the dog. It's an English bulldog, and he's adorable. And I again, he's his face is expressive enough in certain scenes. I like the dog. <laughs> it's not that I don't like the other characters. It's just... The backstory, as I told you earlier, with Jennifer Jones and Robert Walker, it's so distracting with the two of them. Claudette Colbert, she's explaining most of what's going on through her voiceovers, and I feel like her acting just is kind of lacking at times. Monty Woolley is annoying as shit. Um, you get Lionel Barrymore in a very, very tiny role as the clergyman. Wait, Lionel Barrymore? He's the, yeah, he's the, oh, uh-huh. the clergyman. He's right the, 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 the priest. And that's Drew's, that's Drew's grandfather? That's Drew's 
uh, great uncle. Okay. His, her her grandfather yeah. was John Barrymore. This is her great uncle. Um, Lionel, of course, most famous probably for playing Mr. Potter in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. But he's he's got a great resume of movies, so it's always nice to see him in something like this. Um, again, it's very small, though. He's he's quoting from Scripture. Or no, actually, I take that back. He's not quoting from Scripture. He is quoting from um, a recent like novel. He says, I've searched scripture and I've searched my heart for words of comfort yeah. to give you. And instead, here's something from yeah, the book. Yeah, And uh, it's appropriate. It's a nice, lovely moment. But, you know, Lionel Barrymore will pop up again in larger roles because he's in Grand Hotel, which is a Best Picture nominee from 32, right? He's in You Can't Take It With You, which is an, a strange Best Picture winner. I'm sure our audience is so excited for us to cover 1932. <laughs> they can't wait. Lionel Barrymore, though, will be back. Um, yeah. So, if we can talk for a moment, though, about music. I mentioned the overture earlier. And music is definitely... It's hard to ignore in this movie. So, you got Max Steiner here. He's nominated for uh, 24 uh, Oscars throughout the course of his career. Um, We'll talk about the Oscars in a little bit. He obviously wins. He actually wins. Not obviously, but he actually wins for this movie. Um, this is definitely an epic sized score. It's a very present score. It's not subtle in any way. Um, it's definitely, uh, trying to move the audience where it, it can, helping, helping, uh, the audience know what to, I guess, feel, uh, is the best way to describe it. Um, talking about Max Steiner though, for just a second, he wins three Oscars in his career, one for John Ford's The Informer, another for Now Voyager, and then this one. Despite the fact that he composes some of the all-time great scores of the, this era, he did go- King Kong. Admittedly, there was no Oscar for score at the time. King Kong being the first film to use a thematic score. Before that, it was just background music. So it's, he's an important composer for the, the era. He did the, compos- the, the score for Gone with the Wind, one of the most legendary and great epic scores. He did uh, Casablanca. And he did The Searchers. Infamously, The Searchers didn't win any Oscars. It wasn't even nominated. Um, but Max Steiner is a really interesting uh, composer. And I'll be honest, this is not a particular favorite score. It's, I think, too heavy-handed at times throughout this movie. And again, part of that I mentioned earlier is because I think David Oselznik, the producer, is trying too hard to make this a World War II-era version of Gone with the Wind. Um, not quite so much drama, not so much action like we see in Going with the Wind as far as um, Scarlett O'Hara and, and Melanie Griffith and the love triangles or whatever. But he's trying to make this on an epic scale, and the music fits that, but I'm not sure the story lives up to it. So the music kind of outweighs the drama that we see on the screen. It's a little sanguine, yeah. Um, yeah, which is just, it's interesting because Steiner famously said uh, that... The music should be felt rather than heard. And for me, I just don't think that's the case for this score. It's, I think, more heard. It's loud and it's ever-present. So this score, as you just said, won the Oscar. Only Oscar wins. Yes. Yeah, out of nine nominations, nominations, though. Nine nominees, yeah. So picture, obviously, we already mentioned that it did not get director. But uh, Best Lead Actress for Claudette Colbert, Best Supporting Actress... For Jennifer Jones, Best Supporting Actor for Monty Woolley, uh, Best Art Direction, Best Black and White Cinematography, Best Film Editing, uh, Best Special Effects. What's special um, effects? I don't know if they mean the, the train sequence. Maybe I don't know. Like they use miniatures at some at, at times. Yes. 
Um, the film never depicts this. That Oscar worthy. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. The the I well. I guess also today we wouldn't say it's a very good special effect, but clearly most of the dance sequence there's they're using some kind of painted backdrops. Um. For larger to create larger scale than what they've actually they're actually dealing with, um, maybe this got nominated for special effects because of Joseph Cotton's magic act. That's that's it. That's yeah, exactly. It blew their mind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How did he produce that glass of water? Oscar nomination. Can we talk a little bit? Let's let's. Can we go to the, to, to Josh's populist corner for a minute and talk about? We Letterboxd? can go to Josh's populist corner. Yeah. Well, before Letterboxd, I just want to note that this was nominated for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers list, <laughs> but it did not make it. So it was not, it was not good enough to get the cheers, but it was, it was in contention to get cheers. Um, Letterboxd is pretty tame. Um, a, a lot of them, a lot of the reviews are just like kind of saying what the movie is, which indicates to me that like um, that needs to be explained, you know? Uh, you're, you're coming to Letterboxd, check something out, and you're like, oh, it's Claudette Colbert, and she's a mom during World War II, and she has two daughters, and blah, 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 blah. And, like, I think for more well-known movies, they, they kind of just assume that's known already um, and go into more analysis. But here, there's a lot of, like, that kind of stuff. Uh, a few reviews I flagged among the highest-rated reviews. Um, <laughs> can, can I say the one that I said off mic? Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll clean it up a little bit. I'll clean it up to make it a little, a little cleaner. Um, I, I read this to Ken TJ off mic. This is from a four-and-a-half-star review. Quote, this is a fantastic film for many reasons, but one of those reasons is the scene where Jennifer Jones and the little twink soldier meet a twink sailor, and they clearly all want a bone. <laughs> <laughs> because there is a scene where uh bill is taking jane out to not of bowling and there's like a navy guy behind them who's like heckling bill whenever he tries to bowl and like it looks like it's gonna be a conversation but then they all walk out together and are all friendly yeah. and like the letterbox you know comment is in jest obviously but also like not too yeah, off kind of what happened that's the vibe of them walking yeah. out yeah the only <laughs> the only reason why it may not happen is because we haven't bill bill is a really he's like a decent he's a really good boy he's a in fact i think Colbert colbert even describes him as too much he was a good boy he's the kind of kid that goes around saying things like oh it's that's swell that's who we're talking about. Well, he, he even he asks Jane if it's okay that it, that he yes. smokes, and she's like, "Why do you ask if you can smoke?" Yeah, that that yeah. scene throws me off because how crazy is it that this is an era when it's considered really polite to ask before you can smoke? Because everyone's lighting up in the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, more letterbox. Uh, this is just a partial review of a longer review that's four stars. Quote, some movies capture a moment in time. This film is specifically just for one moment in time, set in the year 1943. The war started in December 1941. The men are away. No one knows what will happen next. The film explores the lives of the home front and this one family as they strive to carry on. Which, again, I think is kind of pinpointing why I found this at least semi-interesting. Um, again, kind of just kind of giving that perspective of voice um, where... I think a lot of stories, most stories about World War II are about World War II and not about what we left behind in World War II. So I thought that was interesting. And then uh, a three-and-a-half-star review, again, just a partial uh, of a longer review. Quote, according to Pauline Kael, Since You Went Away is a self-righteous salute to idealized American middle-class values. 
She's right, but what can you expect from a film about keeping up morale on the home front during World War II? The film is sentimental and sanctimonious, but there's still something about the slick sincerity of Selznick cinema that soothes my soul. Look, a little heavy on the alliteration Commentary there. by me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, Pauline Kael's acerbic wit is always welcome on the podcast, so. That's kind of all I got. Like, I, I, I went through the letterbox top reviews, like, nothing really, like, was that good. <laughs> so not really worth sharing. You can check them out at your ledger if you'd like, but. Write some good ones. I guess before, before we wrap this up, what is your ultimate or final take on this movie? What are your final thoughts on, on this particular Best Picture nominee? I didn't hate it. Like you seem to really, I don't like hate it, it, and I thought it was okay. I don't hate it. Yeah, um, I liked it more than I thought I would. But here is a dirty confession on my part. Um, uh, again, this is not available to stream anywhere. No. Not even available to rent for four dollars anywhere in the United States right now. So, like, I watched on YouTube. Sounds like TJ also watched That's on YouTube. Um, one of the benefits of watching on YouTube is you can change the speed. <laughs> so. I watched I watched about 40 or 50 minutes of this last night and then I watched the remaining 2 2 hours and 50 minutes this morning and I just you know I listen to my podcasts at least on one and a half X speed, sometimes on two X speed. So watching the latter two hours of this movie, I just popped it up to one and a half X speed. And so, the, so you get to the you get to the scene in the movie, church and he's like, I don't have anything to say to you except this. <laughs> It's not that so this bad. This was Alvin and the Chipmunks really on the home front. <laughs> no, 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 no. It does. It's not. It does not speed it up enough to change their pitch. It just speeds it up enough to like you know. Okay, get to the point. Spit it out. I get it. Um, and so you know, this three-hour movie for me was only like two twenty. So like you know, maybe that helps. Maybe that helps. As James Cromwell and inte- or John Cromwell intended. <laughs> As James uh-huh. Cromwell intended. Yes. Yes. So, but I, th- I think I think I've already said um, why I. I don't know if I liked this, but uh, why I thought it was better than I thought it would be, and why I like it more than you. Um, I think the perspective is interesting. I think the premise is interesting. I think um, I kind of like seeing the the sacrifices people have made during World War II, um, even if it is a little. I mean, from some perspective, maybe a little bit of propaganda, possibly. I don't, I don't really feel that way though. Um, I thought the revolving door of soldiers in the women's lives was interesting. And I thought the, I, I, I kind of liked the scope where like, again, it begins just as Tim is shipped off. Like it, 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 the movie opens with her returning home, having dropped him off basically to be shipped off, I think. And then it ends the second they get where these coming homes so like that. And then the intermission is when they learn he's missing in action. So like the, the scope of the movie, I, I found to be interesting being denied his return home. I kind of liked that choice, honestly, because that's like the movies about the women, he, not about him. Um, so I thought it was all right. Uh, you know, I, I think there are like some people that I would recommend this to, but like, unless you're like into old movies or into Claudia Colbert, maybe you don't want to check it out. But like, you know, if you are into that, like, you know, you could do worse than this, I think. TJ, final, final thoughts. I did not particularly care for this film. Uh, it was a little bit of a chore for me. I think during the course of... Tried on one and a half X. It's yeah, I bet. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I think during the episode today, Josh made some good points other than watching it at one and a half speed, <laughs> which I, I think I don't think has completely sunk into me just yet. Um, but I think he made some good points that made me quite the endorsement. Watch it. Watch it quickly and it'll be over faster. Yeah, uh-huh. um, that made some good points that made me kind of view the film in a little bit of a different light and maybe appreciate it a little bit more. But it's very much not the type of thing that usually gets me excited and it 
um, I, I can kind of see why it's been lost to time. And it seems a lot like an Oscar movie in the yeah, negative sense of that word. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I should clarify. Um, I, I obviously don't hate this film because I think it'd be very difficult for anybody to hate this movie. It came out pretty strong, Ken. No, no, I'm not gonna lie. No, no, not hate. That's not really fair. The problem is that it it's just a film that I think it runs way too long. First and foremost, and it drags. There are so many decisions made that, particularly with the camera and and the photography, that I've just I don't explore, I don't understand why they're doing it other than style stylistic choices. Um, additionally, there are an awful lot of random scenes in this movie that don't need to be there. Um, I mentioned before the before we started recording the episode, there's a scene um, in which Jane graduates from high school. I I understand that the suggestion. I think Josh, you mentioned that the film was obviously depicting life going on as best it can. Um, but fine, have like you can. You're telling us all of this other stuff. There's so much exposition thanks to voiceover work. We don't need. Uh, we don't need to see her graduating. I don't need that scene. It doesn't tell us anything interesting, and it drags on for a few minutes. That just her mom could. Her mom could have written a poem about it. <laughs> God, it, the same thing with the church. I'm not sure that I need the scene with the church, even though Lionel Barrymore is always a joy. I don't think he needs to be there. And the point is, the film just drags on too long for me. It's just not interesting enough. The concept is is there is a line. There is a line in the graduation scene, though, when the valedictorian goes up to give her speech. She says, "Quote: My subject for this equation, my subject for this occasion, is women's place in the war." So it's basically kind of telling you the thesis of the movie two hours and fifty minutes in, which, just to tell you, "Hey, it's what the which movie's just, about." Which just I I don't want that in the movie. I don't need that. You I don't need told it told at me, but um, I, I I certainly don't need to rewatch it, and I don't regret watching it. I'm glad we watched it. Um, but it's it's fine if I for, I will undoubtedly forget the title later on and most likely forget most of the movie. But I have seen it. I have recorded that I have seen it, and that's that. Sounds so like you're not going to forget right. that dog performance. Though, am I right? No, I'll remember. I'll remember Soda. I'll remember Soda, and I will remember Monty, Monty Woolley being in yet another movie where I find him annoying. Just the, furthering my opinion of his characters. Um, with with that, leaving it on the note, Soda, a big plus. Monty Woolley, not so much. Uh, I think that's going to wrap up our episode, gentlemen. So next week, speaking of slogs, <laughs> what we've we got, got? We've got a biopic about Woodrow Wilson. And I've seen... 154 minutes I've long. Seen, I've Ugh. seen this movie. It, um, it's not... It's not as it's not bad, but it's it's also not going to be a great epic. <laughs> well, Josh, if you watch it on one and a half speed, yeah, that's it's true. Two hours, so. uh, if it's on YouTube, you bet your sweet bippies. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I, I, so I hope I it's might on revoke YouTube. your commenting rights if you watch these all at one and a half speed. <laughs> do you guys notice how much faster I talk than both of you? It's because the voices in my head, in my ears all day, are podcasts of people talking at one and a half, if not two x speed. I've begun to talk faster because of it. And so, you know, that's just how I'm living my life now. I'm sorry. Life in the fast I think lane. it's also like a symptom. I, I'm not diagnosed with anything, but I think it's also a symptom of ADHD. So, like, if there's a psychologist listening to this, give me, give me a diagnosis. That might help me focus more. Uh, as we've discussed, I'm 80, so my mind works like molasses. <laughs> it's very slow. <laughs> like thick molasses. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Jack Nicholson wherever we can. <laughs> um, 
again, as we're recording this, our As Goes It Gets episode just dropped like a few days ago, um, even though we recorded that. Josh, do you want to give our uh, give our listeners uh, uh, what's what on where they can follow us and check us out? Uh, Twitter, at SearsFilmPPL. Maybe someday on Blue Sky? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Twitter seems to be on the downturn. In fact, this morning, I think Elon Musk said that it was going to be switched. The name would be called X instead of called Twitter. I don't know if he's... Joking? I, I don't know. It'll we'll be fun to see when this airs. What you'll yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TikTok, if that's still around in September when this airs, uh, at Serious Film People Podcast, I think Patreon, etc. Uh, I'm behind on putting up some special Patreon only episodes, but we do have one or two in the can that I just need to edit and get up on the website. But they'll be there probably by the time you listen to this i hope <laughs> again i just listened to ours as good as guest episode which we recorded back in april and i was promising episodes that would be up by july and they're not up yet but we'll see i'll get us there and that's it all right thanks guys for sitting through this one we'll uh, be back next week thanks for listening bye, bye. I wish I could get some sausage that isn't made of old shoe polish.